Hello, I'm Ian Hyde, a tax disputes partner in the Osborne Clark tax team. Today I'm with Tracy Wright, one of my partners in the Osborne Clark tax group, and we're going to discuss the IR35 changes taking place next month. We're covering the essentials um, today and we'll cover some of the wider commercial issues in a second podcast. Tracy, um, just to start, is it worth a quick recap about uh, what IR35 is all about? Most people will have some idea, but just just a, a recap. Yeah, absolutely. So IR35 is the, the name of a, an old Inland Revenue Bulletin from 1999 um, that was called IR35. And that introduced a set of anti-avoidance rules um, that were, were brought in at the time to counter what was then growing use of um, limited companies, what we know now as personal service companies. And those companies were used to provide uh, the services to clients um, where the individuals whose services were provided was the individual who owned the company. Um, and what the rules were seeking to do was to um, to tax that that individual as if um, they were employee, if they were an employee, if actually the relationship between that individual and the the, the, the entity that they work for, what was really employment. Um, IR35 was enshrined in legislation in 2000 um, and they, they they looked at the nature of the arrangement between the worker and the end user and whether or not there should be a deemed employment and and the um, the rules talk about a deemed employment payment and when you get a deemed employment payment that effectively that the rules will want to tax that as if it's earnings um where that is the case broadly it's the personal service company that um that was expected to pay the tax on that basis so that that's the current ir35 rules and over the years the revenue have grappled with the rules not really being fit for purpose and trying and, and trying to work out how they inf effectively enforce the rules if you can imagine there's significant number of personal service companies out there and how do how do they effectively enforce against such a, a volume of entities so finally that led to some new rule, new rules in april 2017 that applied to the public sector and they now being extended to the private sector from this April, April 21, and they're they're being referred to as the off um, off payroll rules. Uh, thanks. Uh, these are really big changes, I think, for anyone engaging um, uh, off payroll uh, workers. Um, can you just briefly, if possible, cover some of those the big changes here? Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right, Ian, they're big changes and they're really complicated when 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 you look at the devil of the detail of the drafting. But what I'll try and do is just pick out the the, the key impact of the changes. So um you, you start off by by having to understand how the rules now interact with each other. You've got your original set of rules, IR35, that's enshrined in Chapter Eight, Part Two of ITPA. If we want to get techy, um, and the burden of applying the um, tax on sort of the deemed employment um, payment sits with the personal service company. Um, but under the new rules, which is which are in Chapter Ten of Part Two, the burden is pushed down the supply chain. Um, and when I mean the supply chain, I mean where you've got you've got your personal service company and the worker. You might have a number of agencies, and you've got your end user at the end of the supply chain. The burden is now pushed. They're basically the rules are expecting the the supply chain to police itself um, and pushing the burden of working out status and operating tax away from the personal service company. Um, so a couple of the overriding concepts that arise from the new rules. Um, it's the person to whom the services are provided, the end user, the person who actually is getting the benefit of the worker's work, that in most cases has to determine the status of the worker. 
um, and, and the end user is looking at um, whether or not that worker would be an employee if that worker was working directly for that end worker and uh, that, that end user and not through that that chain of um, of sort of agency and, and, and PSC. Um, the, the reason the end user is being given that burden under the new rules is because it's viewed as the one that should know has that because it's the one that's it's actually the worker is actually working for and there is a um a status indicator tool called cest cest check employee status for tax is what it stands for and that's on the on the revenue website and that's designed to help end users work out that the status of the employee and where an end user does um uh, work out the status and says well yes this arrangement is one that should be treated as if it's an employment range uh, employment arrangement then the, um, the the payments made to the worker are, are, are described as a deemed direct payment and when you get a deemed direct payment you're then bringing that payment potentially into PAYE and they the rules then have this concept of fee payer and that's that's the uh, entity within the supply chain um, in relation to that worker who then has the obligation to operate PAYE on the payment and typically that the fee payer is the party paying the PSC so it's the it, often it's the first agency above the PSC or sometimes is the end user client um, whether or not PAYE is actually due um, depends on uh, normal principles so you then have to look as to whether on where you know where, where the worker is based, where the duties are carried out, and whether actually that payment would be earnings taxable to UK tax under under normal principles. Um, the the rules are designed. The rules have complexity because they um, they're, they're designed to make the fee payer a party that's in the net of PAYE. So um, if actually you have overseas entities in the supply chain, the rules are effectively designed to find the party that the revenue could enforce against to operate PAYE. Um, and, and, and as I, I mentioned, the, the, the rules only extend to, um, to, to tax based on the, um, the status of, of the worker under general principles. And they also um, should never go further than the tax that would have been paid had that worker been directly engaged with the end user. Because the policy behind the whole rules is, is the revenue saying we want that individual to be taxed as if they were an employee of the end user and we're not expecting any more tax than that. So there are some some um, bits and bobs within in the legislation that that protect that overriding principle as well. Okay, that's thank you. That's 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 really a really useful summary. Uh, the, the the one point that I know we've we've had recently on a, a, a come up is how the old rules, the, the, the chapter eight rules, how they interact because they're still there. So so when when do they apply? Because they can do, can't they? Yeah, that's right. So they haven't gone. They're not repealed. Um, and they're, they're, there's effectively a gateway into the new rules, into what are called the off payroll rules. I, I like to sort of view them as new IR35, but that's that's not necessarily the right title for them. Um, you only get you're only in the new rules um, if the end user is a public authority um, or um, is a is a, a medium or large entity and their tests as to what is medium or large but also that medium or large entity needs to have a UK connection and so if your end user is small under the tests or doesn't have a UK connection then the new rules don't apply you effectively don't get through that gateway 
But what that means is in the old rules, the IR35 rules as they exist now apply. So it's not a matter of falling out of one and then nothing applying. You just fall back into the old rules as, they, as they've always existed. Um, and, and then under the old rules, it will be the PSC that then has to determine the status and, and might have an obligation to operate PAYE. Um, the, the thing to note, I think, is that the UK connection point is quite interesting. So that looks as to, to the status of the end user, the party receiving the services. And if it's not resident in the UK or it has no permanent establishment in the UK, then it doesn't have a UK connection. Um, and so and then it fall then you fall outside of these new rules and and as far as i understand it's it's because that, that that's been put into the rules because it, it's felt that it would be hard to enforce against entities that are effectively overseas so that there's there's a lot of burdens on the end user in the new chapter 10 and um, and how do you enforce against an entity that's overseas if they're not doing what they're meant to do um so it is a bit it does throw out some odd results because you could have a uk worker you could have a uk resident psc but if actually they're working for an entity that is overseas and doesn't have a permanent establishment in the UK, then the new rules may well not apply. Yeah, that's going to throw out some interesting points, isn't it? Um, just uh, another point that I know has been uh, being kicked around a bit, the umbrella company issue, that, that's been around. Have, have we now got clarity on that now? Yeah, so umbrella companies, um, I mean, that that's not necessarily a name that's familiar with everybody, but I'm, it will be for people in the industry. So the, these are um, particular types of um, uh, entities used within the sort of um, temporary workplace supply chain, and they typically employ workers. So they would typically operate payroll um, in relation to payments made to the workers in the first place. Um, the way the new rules were drafted, they um, unintentionally brought umbrella companies into the definition of um, intermediary within the rules, but basically into the same definition of the definition for the personal service company. And that wasn't intended. And by doing that, um, that, that ended up with a, an, an odd result because um, you ended up putting a PAYE responsibility further up the chain when actually the umbrella company had it already. And it would would make them redundant in in the supply chain and um, and and it wasn't intended so um when when people looked at the legislation and um, tried to apply it to their situations they realized it didn't work and the government has accepted that and that and it what and then they've said it it was just an error it wasn't intended so that's been um that well they're seeking to perfect it through changes that have been announced um in the finance bill that was published um, uh, recently, and those clauses will um, become effective from 6 April. So the amendment to the rules will, will apply from the point that they become effective. And what, 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 what the amendment does is it narrows the definition um, of intermediary so that true umbrella companies um, should fall outside. Um, although it's worth pointing out that actually the amendments themselves are really quite complicated and there's a um, targeted anti-avoidance rule that's been brought in as part of the tweaks that the revenue that the government have um, made through the finance bill drafting which i think suggests that they're worried that there could be um potential for abuse around the the classification of the intermediary for the purposes of the rules so um, quite a lot of drafting to perfect what's meant to have been a mistake um, it is interesting. I thought I thought the I thirty five rules were complicated um, as they were before that change, but clearly this is um, 
not good news for campaign for simple legislation. Anyway, um, quite a change all of this uh, for anyone involved in supply chains, and we'll we'll, we'll come back to this in in, in another podcast. But do, uh, overall, at the moment, Tracy, do you think businesses are actually ready for April? Um, I think a lot are, yes, um, because these rules were meant to be introduced last year. So they've been delayed by a year because of, of all the COVID impacts out there. Um, so whilst businesses are ready, I think, or the majority of them, in terms of understanding the rules and knowing they're coming in, um, and a majority of them have um, have changed their contractual arrangements to, to deal with the rules, um, I still think there's going to be a transition process um, when the rules become live and these processes are actually then put into place. Um, as, as I mentioned, it's really important to ensure the contractual arrangements work as between the contracting entities in the supply chain and to make sure they're fit for purpose for the new rules um, and that they enable the, the parties in the supply chain to hold each other accountable where necessary. That's a that's a fundamental part of how this will all actually fit together in practice. Um, and, and as you noted, Ian, that that's something that we'll pick up on in a in a later podcast. Um, also, it's interesting that sort of post COVID, we expect that people will be more agile. They won't um, necessarily stay living and working in one place. They they there are lots of people who can carry out their duties. Um, in any part of the world. And I would expect that that will need some more um, attention uh, going forward because the rules have different results depending on where the um, whether the individual is resident and where they carry out their duties. Um, and uh, whilst nothing is changing in relation to that bit of, of, of how the rules work, um, as in, it, you know, that, that the sort of the basic general earnings rules are exactly the same. I just think they'll be more important now because there'll be more people that are um, that that make you need to think about those wider, more complicated rules. Um, so I suspect um, there'll be some more work needed refining some of the contractual arrangements as time goes on, and and these these rules get tested in practice and in terms of uh, working patterns and how they change. Um, and as, as we noted, I, su I suspect it's a, it's a good topic for some of our colleagues in our contingent workforce team um, who've been working closely with clients over the last 18 months or so to put those contracting arrangements in place or refining the ones that exist at the moment. Yes, uh, absolutely. We'll cover that. Um, we'll cover that in in our part two. Um, I have certainly a lot to talk about there. Um, but for now, um, uh, thank you, Tracy. That's been really interesting. I hope you enjoyed listening, uh, listen out for more podcasts, but from the moment, uh, goodbye. <laughs>